Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and, and uh, welcome to uh, this, um, something that's been called the Guardian Lecture. In fact, it's not going to be a lecture, it's going to be a, a conversation uh, in a minute with um, President Carter, but we extend a very warm welcome to him. Uh, I think back to the first time I came to Hay, which was in 2001, uh, the year that President Bill Clinton came. Um, and I remember thinking how incongruous it seemed to find uh, a former American president wandering around the, the little bookshops of Hay. Uh, and how normal it seems today that uh, a former president should be here. Um, I went to see Gene Robinson uh, earlier today. Uh, and there seemed, it seemed perfectly normal to suddenly see the former president of the United States slip into the front row and, and watch him, just as it was perfectly normal to uh, suddenly realize that the anorak couple next door to me were the British Foreign Secretary and his wife. Um, uh, and it was perfectly normal to see the president of the United States in a little uh, school down the road giving a press conference uh, this afternoon, that, that these are the kind of things that have become normal to see in Hay, and, and I think that's a measure of the great progress that um, we've made uh, in, in the seven years that The Guardian has been associated with Hay and, and, and Peter Florence's brilliant uh, work here. This is going to be a, a, a very brief uh, introduction. If you want the full version of um, Jimmy Carter's life, uh, he's written uh, 24 books worth of it. Um, <laughs> His public life, I think, splits, uh, his public life on the international stage splits into two parts. Uh, there was uh, a remarkable presidency, uh, remarkable sometimes for things that uh, Jimmy Carter uh, didn't necessarily appreciate at the time as being remarkable, uh, but he did make remarkable steps in peace in the Middle East, uh, in strategic arms limitation uh, on the environment, uh, and in bringing China into the international community, amongst many other things. But really, his life uh, as a former president has been uh, even more remarkable. Uh, he didn't go off and make millions, as some uh, former uh, politicians have. Um, in many ways, he's led um, rather a simple life. Um, it's been simple in its concerns and focus. Uh, the mission statement of the Carter Center is to advance human rights uh, and alleviate unnecessary suffering, which is a very simple uh, aim. Uh, and it's interesting, I think, to speculate as to why, in some ways, the second part of his public life has been uh, more effective than the first. Um, and I thought, watching him this afternoon at that little school giving his pre press conference uh, all about Israel-Palestine, I thought there were some clues. Uh, I thought there was something about his humor and grace, uh, something about his plain speaking, his, his ability to explain a highly complex subject like Israel-Palestine in terms that people could understand, uh, which is not quite the same as direct speaking, which he also has, uh, a lack of concern for diplomatic uh, niceties. Uh, I was struck by his fearlessness. Uh, he doesn't mind who he upsets in telling, uh, telling it like he sees it. You can't help but be struck by his passion, uh, by his humanity, uh, and his sense of what is fair. You couldn't help but be struck by his grasp of detail or his unflagging commitment to this cause that he's uh, been interested in now for uh, well over 30 years. Uh, you get a sense of shining honesty, 
and I think finally you have a sense of serenity, which I think is perhaps only achievable at the age of 83, uh, and having put so much into that particular subject, uh, and having seen so many politicians uh, come and go, but perhaps particularly seen uh, people who were involved with him in that process uh, giving up their lives or, or losing their lives in a, in, in a violent way for the cause that they embarked on. And maybe that's a clue to what's driven him a sense that he has a duty to them to try and uh, advance that work. And you put all those qualities together and you think those are the qualities that ought uh, to make uh, a great and successful politician. And then you think there's something about politics uh, today in Western democracies in which people of, uh, who have those qualities and people of, uh, who have uh, that caliber uh, don't necessarily succeed and may not uh, even be electable. Uh, his stance on Israel and Palestine is not universally popular and has been controversial, but I don't think anyone doubts uh, his motives for doing it, his sincere belief and the formidable will and steely skill and determination that he brings to it. So it's going to be, uh, the next hour is going to be uh, a great treat, and, and a treat uh, also because of his um, interlocutor today, tonight, Philippe Sands, um, who is also a, a, a very interesting and remarkable figure. Uh, he has at least four careers. Uh, he's a, a barrister, a distinguished QC in human rights. He's an academic. Uh, he's had a third career as a writer and uh, a journalist on legal matters and on human rights. Uh, and he also has a, a further string, which is a kind of activist. Um, he uh, believes passionately in, in, in these causes that he's engaged with and rather skillfully combines this legal and forensic skill uh, and his academic knowledge uh, and his ability to write with an ability to, to whip up uh, concern and publicity and, and action around the causes that he champions. Uh, and he's just written a, a really interesting uh, and um, page-turning book uh, about Guantanamo and torture, uh, which he approaches almost like a detective story. I really recommend it if you, um, if you like that kind of thing. Uh, so um, you're going to have two remarkable people here talking about uh, some incredibly important issues. I know you're in for a great treat, and I want you to give the biggest possible welcome to President Carter and Philippe Sand. Thank you. Thank you very much. President Carter, firstly, on behalf of everyone in the room and everyone at the Hay Festival, welcome to you and to your family, to Britain, and also to the Hay Literary Festival. Well, thank you. It's good to be back in this beautiful country and the home of the greatest poet that's lived in the last hundred years, Dylan Thomas. So I'm very delighted to be back where I belong. We've got uh, just under an hour, and there's obviously a whole range of different topics that people in the room are deeply interested in. And we'll have an opportunity, you and I, to have a conversation, uh, and then we will throw it open to uh, questions uh, from the floor. I want to begin with a moment uh, immediately after you ceased to be President of the United States in January 1981. You made it very clear 
in one of your writings that you were going to emulate President Truman and engage for the rest of your professional life in public service. And you've done that and you've created uh, the Carter Center and you've been engaged in all sorts of activities. Of all of the things you've been engaged in since you were the president, which is the one of which you're most proud? <laughs> well, I guess you mean since I was involuntarily, re involuntarily retired from the White House by the election in 1980. Yes, uh, I did have uh, a choice to make about what I would do, and I think what the Carter Center has tried to do is to adopt things that others didn't want to address. But if I look down the total of uh, things that I've accomplished maybe since we left the White House, I believe it would be the almost total eradication of one of the most horrible diseases that human beings have ever known, and that is uh, Dracunculosis or guinea worm. This is uh, probably the fiery serpent in the Bible and afflicted people in earlier than biblical days. We started out with this disease, which is relatively unknown and unaddressed. In uh, 23,700 villages, we found 3,600,000 cases, and now we have less than 5,000 cases left in the whole world, and we know where every one of them is, we know who has the disease, and we believe it, but for a few more months goes by, this will be the second disease ever eradicated from the face of the earth. And what makes it so important is that these were people who suffered about whom very few people knew or cared that they even existed. So I think that's the most important thing that I've done. And, and you've taken on a whole raft of causes, some of which are very well known in the Middle East, which we'll come on to. Uh, human rights issues which we'll come on to, but you've also often engaged in subjects that are more obscure. Guyana, for example, I know yeah. is a place you've put a huge amount of time yeah. uh, into. Looking across the range of the political engagements you've been involved in in the last 25 years, how different is the world today than 25 years ago? Well, what the Carter Center has had as a purpose is to fill vacuums in the world. And what we decided to do after I left the White House with no authority, I still don't have any authority, is to address issues that no one else wants to address. Uh, if the United Nations or the United States government or the World Health Organization or the World Bank or a great university is adequately taking care of a problem, we don't get involved in it. We don't duplicate what they're doing or compete with them. So this has led us into areas that in the past have not been addressed. And sometimes we negotiate peace agreements, sometimes we help hold elections, sometimes we just ease tensions between people, sometimes we resolve a suffering. And in the political realm, I think that some of the most notable things we've done is to be willing to talk to people who were international pariahs or outcasts. I think we actually prevented a war taking place in 1994 uh, when my wife and I went to North Korea to meet with Kim Il-sung, whom I had despised as a young submarine officer during the Korean War. I was in the Pacific then. But he invited me to come over, and we finally got permission to go. The world was prepared to embark on an attack economically and maybe militarily against North Korea, and they were almost inevitably going to attack South Korea. So I went into Pyongyang, 
in just a couple of days negotiated a successful agreement to get them to abandon their nuclear program and came back. So that's the kind of thing that we have done. Uh, we've also immersed ourselves in almost forgotten countries. We just, my wife and I just came back last month with a group from the Carter Center where we conducted an, an honest, fair, open, safe, and successful election in Nepal, a little country where Mount Everest is, that's most, what most people know about it. But we, in the process, the Carter Center helped to end a 12-year revolutionary war and to uh, stop conflict among political parties and to make it possible for them to form a brand new government with uh, the incorporation of a large number of people, more than half the total population, who had in the past been completely excluded because of our inferior social status from any role in the government or any role in the military. So those are the kind of things that sometimes the Carter Center can do. You, you mentioned Kim Il-sung. Others on the list would include uh, President Milosevic. That's uh, right. Serbia, you spent some time with. And, of course, more recently, we'll come back to this, Hamas. Yes, I remember. Is there anyone, uh, <laughs> is there anyone you wouldn't talk to or any entity you wouldn't talk to? Yeah, well, I wouldn't, for instance, the leaders of al-Qaeda. I wouldn't go, to, go there because I think they totally have proven themselves to be dedicated to... Uh, to murder of innocent people, to sustain violence as the only way to achieve their, their gains. They have no support from a populace. Uh, they represent the most reprehensible aspects of human nature. Uh, their goal is to tear down and to destroy rather than to build up. Uh, and they have no legitimacy. So something like that, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden or al-Qaeda, I would certainly not touch them at all even in an, a backhanded way. Some of the characterizations you had now used to be said in this country in relation to the IRA. And of course, we learned much later that there were uh, back channels, informal communications, yes. and that those later became terribly important in opening an avenue. Is there nothing that could encourage that? Well, even, even when I was president, I, I knew some of the leaders of the IRA, and, and they would express to me privately you know, their legitimate political goals. I won't get into an argument about that with people who know more than I. But I don't see any legitimacy or any self-saving grace from an, an organization like Al-Qaeda, whose only public uh, demonstrations of their influence or power has been through uh, the killing of innocent people to arouse terror among the remaining citizens. What about in relation to another uh, country which you have a close relationship with and a complex relationship with, Iran? There's right now a whole debate about the nature of the engagement between the United States and Iran. Would you envisage circumstances in which you could have conversations? Of course, tomorrow. I think the United with, States... Without preconditions? Without preconditions as far as starting talks, yes. I think there certainly ought to be some preconditions or some careful preparations before the United States of America meets with the top leader of, uh, of Iran. But I think we ought to start tomorrow with direct talks at a lower level to explore the possibilities of accommodation and to let them know our concerns, our legitimate concerns, and let us know their legitimate concerns and aspirations, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, I was present, as you remember, when the Shah was overthrown and the Ayatollah Khomeini took office with his revolutionary government immediately. I mean, I established diplomatic relations with Iran. This is proven quite vividly a few months later when they took my hostages who were in 
in uh, Tehran to serve me. And, and they had about 75 uh, of their diplomatic personnel in Washington as well representing Iran. So, so the discussion or talking or, or negotiating or planning or sharing ideas with, with uh, other people, I think, ought always to be uh, carried out between legitimate representatives of a people. Since we're on the subject of Iran, you uh, I've written, I think, and uh, the quote I took from one of your books Uh-oh. was that human, human rights... Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a happy quote. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> human rights, I think you've said, is the foundation of our nation's foreign policy. And you, yes, it is. Uh, I listened with interest to Alan Rusbridge's uh, list of... Uh, significant achievements. To my mind, one of the very great achievements of your presidency was to put human rights on the international agenda in a way no other president uh, had done, building on various issues. In in relation to Iran in the late 1970s, there was a dichotomy there, wasn't there? Because you had a strong commitment to human rights, but you engaged in the realpolitik of dealing with the Shah, whose domestic human rights record was less than ideal. Yes. Well, I, when I made my inaugural speech as uh, president, I pointed out that uh, human rights would be the foundation of our foreign policy, and that every ambassador on earth would be my personal human rights representative, and that every American embassy on earth would be a haven for people who were persecuted by their own government. And when the Shah demonstrated that I thought that he had lost the support of many of his people, and separated himself even from his closest advisors who had formerly cautioned him. And he let his uh, secret police, SABAK, S-A-B-A-K, attack what I consider to be innocent demonstrators, young, young people. I chastised him very severely uh, in my back office of the, near the Oval Office of the White House and told him that I thought this was a serious mistake, that he should let his people express their views against him. But he thought that I was mistaken. He chastised me and said that, that these were just a tiny portion, I think he said less than 1%, who were and then, then communists, which has the same connotation now as terrorists do, and that if I didn't address those kind of threats in my country in the same way with all the European countries, we were going to be in bad trouble. So I think that that was an indication quite early that the Shah had lost touch with his own people and was using abusive violations of human rights to maintain himself in power. And then when he was overthrown by the, by the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini's supporters, then that was, a, I think, a, a very serious blow to the uh, beliefs, not only of America, but of every, I think, every secret service or every intelligence service in the world. You, you, you touched on one aspect of that that I'm interested in. You, you kept the conversations private. You chastised him privately. You took a visit, I think... Uh, before he fell, obviously, to uh, Iran. And I know from some recent writings and earlier writings that a number of people in Iran were deeply disappointed that you chose not to publicly criticize his human rights record on the occasion of that visit to Iran. Do you regret that with the benefit of hindsight? If I had known that the show was going to be overthrown, which nobody did, uh, it may have been to my political advantage to align myself with the future revolutionaries who might sometime in the future take over Iran and depose the Shah, but I didn't have any opportunity to do that. So I don't think it's possible for me to have predicted that the Shah was going to fall. 
You have to remember that the Shah had been in power then during the terms uh, of seven, six presidents before I was uh, inaugurated. And certainly uh, all of us would like to have used our influence beneficially to prevent any human rights abuse or persecution of Iranian people by the Shah, which then resulted maybe in an exacerbated way in, this, in his being overthrown. But I, I don't think I, it's even reasonable to suggest that I or any other leader who knew Iran better than I did could have anticipated that. Were there other aspects you might have anticipated, and again with the benefit of hindsight, done differently? I, I'm thinking, for example, the invitation to the Shah to spend time in the United States after he was deposed, which seems to have galvanized very yes. strong feelings within Iran. Well, might, I, might that have been handled differently? That became the most uh, unpleasant crisis of my life. When the Shah was deposed, I did not want him to come to the United States. I wanted him to stay in another country, but to be safe and, and to live the rest of his life in retirement. So I made arrangements for him to go to Egypt because I had a good friend in Anbar Sadat. He took him into Egypt. Uh, before too many weeks went by, there was a presumption that the Shah was too close to Iran, that he might even launch an attack from Egypt. So then I made arrangements for the Shah to come to a Caribbean country. He claimed to me after a few weeks that he was cheated and that he was being charged too much and he wanted to leave. So I, then I made the arrangements for him to come to Contradora Island in the, on the Pacific coast of, uh, of Panama. And he went there. And he stayed there despite his importunities to come to America uh, from Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller and, and many other people. And I resisted because I didn't think it was the proper thing to do. Finally, the Shah reached a point of terminal cancer. All of his doctors in Panama said that he was going to die. And they asked if he could come to a hospital in New York for treatment. And I said, I would consider that. So I contacted the incumbent president and prime minister of Iran. And I said, I want to let the Shah come to New York, to my country, to be treated. But I would like for you to guarantee me the safety of American people there. We had about over 10,000 Americans working in Iran. And they came back and gave me that assurance, provided the Shah would agree not to make any political statements condemning the incumbent regime while he was in New York, and he agreed to that. So he came to New York, he never opened his mouth in any political statement, and then the hostages were taken by some militant young people. Uh, the Ayatollah's son endorsed their action, but when the Ayatollah approved what they had done, the incumbent president and the prime minister resigned in protest and left Iran because the Ayatollah violated their promise to me. So that was a, a quick, maybe not quick enough, summary of what happened. Because right. there's, there's an interesting tension yeah. that I can see that the draw towards the it humanitarian... Was, it was more than interesting at the time, I can assure you of that. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Go but ahead. a tension between your, your, your personal, in a sense, humanitarian instinct yes. on the one hand, and on the other hand, I just noticed in your writings there's a theme that runs all the way through, and this is, you have your very strongly committed to issues of accountability and individual responsibility. Yes. That's a difficult issue, isn't it? Well, it is. And you have to have a sound enough judgment if you're making a decision 
about whether another person is fulfilling their responsibilities to try to understand the circumstances in which that other person is exercising leadership. Does that person have enough support from his public or her public to take a bold step? Or are they very fragile in their political status? For instance, right now, I'm not trying to inject modern-day things into it, but I would think that the general consensus now is that the leader of the Palestinians, Mahmoud Abbas, does not have adequate support among the Palestinian people to take bold action, since over half the Palestinians are probably not involved in the present government since Hamas has left. And I would guess that in Israel, that the present prime minister, uh, who inherited the, the position, as you know, from Ariel Sharon, does not have adequate, bold, competent, firm leadership to take action that might be controversial among his own constituency. Uh, if, for instance, the leaders of Shah's party, a religious party, would withdraw their support from the prime minister, his government would fall. And he's now being investigated, which is well known in the news media, for possible taking of improper payments. So I, I would say in that case, both leaders are too weak for anyone outside to expect them to take really bold and courageous action of a political nature. So I think you have to make a judgment in each case. What, what's the general principle guiding the judgment when it comes to leaders or former leaders who've committed crimes? I remember in one of your books you describe meetings with then-President Milosevic, and I think it was Senator Leahy of Vermont, impressed upon you the need to not make any promises to Mr. Milosevic yeah. in relation to immunity. When in, Which I didn't. Yeah, go ahead. When an individual president has engaged in a crime of that kind, what's the balance between immunity and realpolitik? Well, as you probably know, until quite recently, that is, in, in my children's life, it has been an international presumption that a formal leader of a nation, a king or a president or a prime minister, would not be put on trial in a different country for crimes that, that he or she had committed. And I think the first deviation from that was with uh, the former leader of, uh, of Chile. Um, and, and he was actually, I think, arrested in, in Great Britain Pinochet. And, and there was a, a, a law in Spain that outlawed terror, torture, and Great Britain turned him over to Spain for trial, and he was eventually trialed. And I think now that has established a, a, a tenuous, not yet fully accepted, international legal principle that the leader of a nation, if he's guilty of torture or of international crimes, can later be tried in another country or indicted in another country and brought, and brought to trial. So I think that's a new development that, that has only come recently, and I don't think it's yet been established. A, 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 a for, you have to be a former president and you then lose immunity. Is it a, is it a decent principle in your view? <laughs> if you'll tell me what your next question is, I'll answer <laughs> You, you gave an interview. <laughs> you gave an interview last October to Wolf Blitzer of CNN, and you surprised a number of people in the United States. 
on what you said in respect of the United States' move towards torture. You yes. said, I think, I know it's happening. Yes. We've subsequently learned that it was authorized at the very top. That's true. What's your reaction to that? Of embarrassment and uh, horror and despair and hope that the next president of the United States, whether it's uh, Republican or Democratic, will permanently and on a global basis vow that our country will never again torture a prisoner and that we will... And that we will in the future comply with the terms of the international agreements on multiple subjects in which the United States has been actively involved in the preparation of the agreement. Uh, this is something that we have seen happen in our country in recent uh, months or years, recent years, that's un that are unprecedented in our history. And in my opinion, it violates the basic principles that have made our nation a great one in the, in the past. That's the future, but what about the past? I mean, we're all... I mean, the United States has led the world... Yes, I know. ...in putting in place a global rule of law such as it is, human rights, the torture convention. We've got a president who has authorized torture. Yes. Torture is a crime. How does the United States balance those issues? I think the United States would uh, accept the fact that that president has been replaced and would respect the, his, that president's right to live a, a productive and peaceful life in our country. In our country? What if he said... I'm not it? getting back to your previous question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there have been warnings of other leaders in the past for instance, uh, there were warnings given, I understand, to former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger that if he visited some countries because of what happened in the bombing uh, of, uh, in, during the Vietnam War, that, that he might be accused of a crime. So I think there's been some caution there. Uh, and there have been some allegations that even George Bush Sr. might be threatened with some legal action in some other countries because of the uh, first Iraq war. But I, but I really uh, prefer not to speculate on what might happen in the future about my current president. You've been putting an awful lot of time in the past months and, uh, and years to the Middle East. I know it's an enormously important issue it is. for you. For 32 years of my life. Go we're, ahead. We're, we're going to have a new U.S. president in January. What's your advice to that president in those most important first 100 days okay. on the issues of the Middle East? My first uh, advice, not getting involved in details, would be to begin a determined effort to bring peace to the Middle East during those first 100, years, 100 days and not wait until the last 100 days that a president's in office. Um, <clears throat> And I'm not bragging on myself at this moment, but, but I began that effort even before I, I was in, uh, inaugurated as president to arrange to have meetings with leaders from all of the Arab countries 
than uh, in, in ex- than existing. And I and by June of my first year in office, I had met with the leaders of all the countries, and I had identified Sadat as the only one willing enough and courageous enough to participate. And I was pleasantly surprised when Begin decided to. So my advice to the next president was: don't wait until your second year in office. Begin immediately to learn about the issues and to and to follow. I would say two things: follow the policies of the official policies of the United States government. And if you read the official policies of the United States government, is to support the United Nations Security Council recommendations and also to, to follow the official resolutions, resolutions and to follow the official position of the United States on the ultimate goals of the roadmap. And both of those are compatible. There's no incompatibility between those. And that means the withdrawal of Israel from the occupied territories and the full commitment to Israel's security and the right of return of the Palestinians to their own land. And I'm including, I'm, I'm going to put, I'm going to put in a couple of caveats now. I think that 19, the pre-1967 borders can be modified through negotiations uh, in the so-called Geneva Accords, which, in which I was somewhat participating. I gave the keynote speech in Geneva when they were unveiled. That called for the modification of the 67 borders to permit more than half of the Israelis in Palestine to stay in Palestine and to let that part of Palestine become part of Israel and then to give the Palestinians an equivalent amount of land just east of of the Gaza Strip. And then the other thing is the right of return. I would not advocate the full unlimited right of Arabs to return wherever they lived prior to 1948. But I think they should be permitted to come back anywhere they want to in the West Bank. And the Geneva Accords call for Israel to accept those that they want. This gives Israel a lot of authority to come back into Israel. Israel may say zero, or they might say a handful. But those that can't come back into their legitimate homes prior to 1968 would be adequately compensated. And there's a mechanism now in the international community, the International Claims Court, that I have personally used in the past to pay off all the claims against Americans against Iran. And so it's there. And I don't have any doubt that we could raise enough money for that. The the U.S. has a particularly powerful position and role. It can exercise leverage that no other state can exercise. What are the kinds of pressures you would advise the U.S. to bring to bear on the Israelis and on the Palestinians? How far should they go in pressurizing both sides? Well, I would like to have seen President Bush two weeks ago when he was in the Knesset, the Parliament of Israel, make a statement. Uh, I think all of you in this Knesset would agree that Israel has never had a stronger supporter than I am. I'm talking about President Bush. And I think everybody there would probably have agreed. And I say to you now that the time has come for Israel to comply with the full terms of the roadmap, and that is to withdraw all of your settlers from Palestine, except those that might be left there with negotiation, and to give the Palestinians 
full and unequivocal basic rights to have their own nation alongside you in peace and with a contiguous land and you will get full support from the international community. And uh, that's what I want my friends here in the Israeli government to agree to do because I only have a few more months left in office. I have given you all I have and this is what I want you to give to me. I think that's what could be done. It's not an impossibility because I believe that overwhelmingly I would say 60% or more for the last 30 years the Israelis have said we will accept with security swapping Palestinian land back to them for peace. And I think the overwhelming majority of uh, Palestinians will agree to the same thing. Should it be backed by a threat of economic sanction, so to speak? The U.S. provides billions every year of aid to the Israeli side. Is it time to say we will now reflect on that very carefully unless you move? Well, I don't think, I don't think the proper approach would be to threaten, certainly not publicly. I have, I have threatened to withhold Israeli aid the first time they invaded Lebanon, and they withdrew. George H.W. Bush, George Bush Sr., withheld, I think, $700 million allocated to Israel when they continued to build settlements in Palestine between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and, and, they, and they stopped. They've now finished it after, after George H.W. Bush left. But uh, I think that that's something that could be considered. But I think if the United States president, particularly one as supportive as George W. Bush has been to Israel, would make that kind of statement, in my opinion, our country would back him. And I don't think it would be necessary to say we're going to withhold your money uh, because of that. We, we give, uh, the United States gives Israel roughly $10 million a day. And we have done that now for many years. So it's, it's not a matter of, of threatening. It's a matter of a, of a quiet understanding. Britain, of course, has a particular role in the story of Israel and Palestine. What should the British be doing? <laughs> well, let me just take one example. <laughs> I believe that the greatest... Let me change that. I believe that one of the greatest human rights crimes now taking place on earth is the imprisonment of 1.6 million Palestinians in Gaza. And, and the withholding not only of their freedom, but of their right to adequate food, shelter, electricity, fresh water, in order to survive. And in this particular uh, decision that has been made and is being implemented every day, uh, I would like for Great Britain to say this is not right. And, and I disagree for one of the few times with my friends in, in the United States. And, and we believe that the Palestinian people in Gaza should be treated with all human rights. Of the 1.6 million, about 900,000 are children, less than 18 years old. 
A million of them are refugees. Most of them have no military role to play. And a substantial portion of them uh, even support Fatah. But still, Gaza is imprisoned totally. And the people there don't have access to the ocean, to fish, or to the land, or to the air. And, and they are being uh, punished severely. Just before we, we throw it open to the audience, we have obviously an important presidential election coming up. Uh, I heard, in the United I heard States. about it. Yeah, you're familiar with it. Well, that's home. The people of uh, Georgia have expressed a view, and you explained to me how the people of Plains have expressed a view on the uh, Democratic candidate, uh, Senator Obama. It looks as though it's going to be a campaign between Senator Obama and Senator McCain. You're from a southern state. There have been interesting primaries in the past few weeks. Is America ready to elect an African-American as its president? Yes. And I don't think I would have said that so freely. I know I wouldn't have said it so freely uh, a few months ago. But I saw Georgia, my state, where I've lived all my life except when I was off in the Navy for 12 years, um, vote overwhelmingly for Obama. And he got a majority of white votes. This would, be, would have been incomprehensible a few years back. He did the same thing in South Carolina, same thing in North Carolina, maybe not precisely that. And um, I think that proves that the answer to your question is yes. Also, he had been terribly uh, hurt, scandalized in a way, by the irresponsible and radical statements of his pastor, Reverend Wright. And that had that particular repetitive condemnation of a curse against America, for instance, taken out of context but still very serious, had been repeated a thousand times on every news media almost. And Obama uh, weathered that. And so I think he's done quite well under very difficult circumstances as far as a race question is concerned. It's still, though, in my country, maybe even here, a, a subterranean, subconscious issue, just to be naturally prejudiced against someone who has a different color skin or, or something of that kind. And so it's still there, but I think he has minimized the uh, adverse effect of his race. And I think America is ready. Although we saw in the recent primary in Kentucky opinion polls which suggested that of the people who had cast their vote in the Democratic primary, for Senator Clinton, two out of three would prefer to vote for John McCain than for Barack Obama. That, that will change. You know, I think Obama made a mistake by not campaigning actively in uh, Indiana and Kentucky. I, I think he should have campaigned in all the states act, uh, aggressively and got as many votes as he could. But in effect, he, he marked those states off. And as you know, he concentrated on Oregon instead and came in, I think, with 62% in Oregon, something like that. So I think he, that was a strategic decision he made trying to get a majority of, of electable delegates, which he did that night. 
But um, my opinion is that those people would change. Uh, any candidate, I mean, any voter now who has observed the Bush administration for seven and a half years and who has a chance uh, in the primary to, to vote and, and hey, choose a Democratic ballot are inclined not to vote for the, for the incumbent. And, and to the extent that John McCain's basic policies on many issues can be tied very closely with, with President Bush's, I think he will suffer accordingly. I'm not equating uh, John McCain with the incumbent president because they differ in some ways. Uh, McCain, bless him, has, has condemned any torture. Uh, he has called for the immediate closing of Guantanamo Bay, which has been used as a torture camp. Uh, he has also, however, been, I would say, more uh, warlike than President Bush has been. Every time President Bush has made a state uh, uh, a decision to go into Iraq or to increase troops and so forth, McCain has always criticized Bush by not sending in enough troops or not going in early enough. And now he has said, uh, in maybe an offhand mark, remark, but maybe a, a maybe a, a representative mark, remark that we might have troops in Iraq a hundred years from now. And so I, I don't think that, that uh, there's going to be a, a dramatic change in international affairs uh, owned by John McCain if he is elected, except maybe on, the, on human rights, which is very important. So I think that, that uh, uh, those voters that said, I'm not going to vote for, for Obama because he's black would be very minimal uh, in West Virginia, which is not nearly so deeply ingrained in racial discrimination as my own state of Georgia that has already shown that it would vote for Obama. I mean, see, seen from the UK, the Bush presidency has been pretty disastrous. What does a president... Well, well I wouldn't want to disagree with... <laughs> uh, what does a President Obama or President McCain have to do in those first few days to restore the confidence of the rest of the world? The next president doesn't have to wait the first few days. The, president, the next president can change in the first 10 minutes. And what are the things that first president should say? If the next president minutes? takes the oath of office and the Supreme Court justice sits down and the next president walks to the podium and says, while I'm president of the United States, we will never again torture a prisoner. When I'm president of the United States, we will never again attack another country unless our own security is directly threatened. When I'm president of the United States, my nation will be in the forefront of protecting the environment against global warming and every other challenge. When I'm, when I'm president of the United States, human rights will be the foundation of our foreign policy. When I'm president of the United States, every international agreement in which the United States has participated in concluding that agreement, we will honor it. Uh, when I'm president of the United States, 
one of the earliest and, and most fervent commitments I will make is to bring security and peace to Israel and to all of its neighbors, and I'll treat them on an equal basis. Though that hasn't taken 10 minutes, but, but if that series of resonating words go throughout the world to more than a billion people that are going to be watching the television, in my opinion, almost instantly, the image of my nation will be changed. judge the reaction for yourself. We're waiting and I think hoping and uh, very much wanting it. Um, let's now move to the uh, audience and invite questions from the floor. Uh, if the lights could come up, I can then, and I'll go around the room as fairly as I can to get people in all sectors. So um, let's start right up at the back uh, over, over there. I can see you over there. Hi. Um, we all know we're all fairly familiar with the achievements um, since the presidency. Um, my question is, did you always know that after your term in office, this is the route that you would take? Or was it because of events during the presidency that made you choose that particular path? Change what? Was it events during the presidency that directed you to the path you took in your post-presidential career? Well, I have to say that I didn't expect to be defeated. I was looking forward to four more years <laughs> in the White House. And then uh, I was defeated in the first week in November, and I didn't leave office until the third week in January. So I had plenty of time to prepare for leaving the White House. But I, I had not prepared myself for future. I was one of the younger presidents who ever survived the White House. I was only 56 years old when I left the White House, and, and uh, I, was, I found to my amazement that I was a million dollars in debt, which I had never been before in my life. And so I, I went back to Plains, Georgia, which is now has grown to a population of 635 people, and, and we didn't have any career ahead of us. And I, I, wrote a, uh, I sold my business in order to keep from losing my home, and I paid off my debt, and I wrote a book called Keeping Faith, My Memoir. At that time, we didn't know what else we were going to do. I didn't want to take a, biz, a, a job in business, and there were no job opportunities around. But uh, I, I got a job teaching uh, in a great university, Emory University in Atlanta, and I'm still teaching there after 26 years. And we decided ultimately to, to build a presidential library and to form the Carter Center. And at first, I thought the only thing that the Carter Center would do would be to emulate Camp David and give me a forum within which I could use my negotiating skills to try to bring an end to conflict or the threat of conflict. That was my only dream at first. I, there were two people, who, one other person who worked for me, there just were two of us that formed the Carter Center. And then I since said it's grown, as you now see. So you can see I had no plans when I left the White House, or even, I would say, a year later, uh, to do what we are presently doing. In the front of the back. We can't see much, but... Left-hand side. 
Mr. President, I just wondered, would you ever have been the 39th President of the United States without the late Hamilton Jordan? All right. Asking you about Hamilton Jordan. Yeah. Well, I, I gave the uh, part of the funeral service for Hamilton Jordan just two days ago when he had his funeral service at the Carter Center. Hamilton Jordan, maybe unknown to many of you, was the most brilliant young political strategist maybe who ever lived in our country. Uh, he adopted me, in effect, when I was an unknown peanut farmer running for governor. Uh, he came to help me as a college student, and later he ran my successful gubernatorial campaign in 1970. And then when I, after two years, less than two years, he devised a plan by which I could be elected president of the United States. Uh, I didn't have any money. I was unknown. And I didn't know much about our country then either. But uh, I followed Hamilton's plan, and uh, I was elected president of the United States. Hamilton then served as my chief of staff, although he didn't ever want that title. But he was so such a natural, natural leader, although one of the youngest members in the White House, all the rest of them looked upon him as a natural leader. And if I had endorsed somebody else, Hamilton would still have been looked upon as their leader. Hamilton, after I left the White House, Hamilton, unfortunately, had six different kinds of cancer, one after the other. He was on the verge of death during a lot of years of his life. Hamilton wrote a book called There's Nothing, No Such Thing as a Bad Day, and he literally counseled thousands of people who all felt that he, they were doomed to an early death because of their physical affliction. And, and he was such a, a heroic, courageous figure that he inspired them to use the best of their remaining days or to struggle to have more days. So when Hamilton passed away, it was a loss to me personally, obviously, and to my country. As I said in his funeral, no one has had a greater or benef more beneficial effect on my life's career than this young man, Hamilton Jordan, who was young enough to be my child. So that's, that's a brief summary of Hamilton's life. Well, do we have a, do we have a mic? Do we have a, yeah. do we have a mic over here? There's a, on this side of the room, at the front over here. Mr. President, yes. sometimes large intractable problems can be solved or kick-started into success by solving a smaller one. Would uh, the Middle East process be aided if the problem of Jerusalem was solved first? I think that would be getting the, as we say in America, the cart before the horse. I don't think you could start with Jerusalem. Uh, although, when I was at Camp David, uh, as I wrote in my memoir, I got Begin and Sadat to agree on a paragraph concerning Jerusalem, which in effect was that Jerusalem would be made a non-political city and that the holy places would be controlled by the believers in that particular religion and that there would be a joint governing body formed, a council, you might say, to manage the affairs of Jerusalem, which would be to collect the garbage and to operate the water system and things of that kind. Begin and Sadat both adopted that a push proposal, but at the last minute they asked me to, to withdraw it. And there have been other uh, solutions to Jerusalem put forward 
basically along those lines, including what I mentioned earlier, the Geneva Accords. And you can look it up on the Internet if you have that and see what specifically it is, even down to the last street and so forth. But, but I think that, that would be the wrong place to start. I, I think the, the, the proper place to start would be to deal with the uh, territorial uh, division and, and with the agreement that in the future Israeli settlements would be withdrawn. I think that would be the easiest one. The, the second may be uh, the refugees if, if they could be brought back into the West Bank and compensated for, for not going back into Israel. And I think the last one would probably be uh, Jerusalem. But I, I see a, a possibility where both the Israelis, if they wish, and the Palestinians could have Jerusalem as a capital. But that's a, a very sensitive decision that would have to be made. I know now, for instance, that the Shah's political party, that whose votes support Omer's government have told him, I understand, that if he puts Jerusalem on the table to be negotiated, just does that, they will withdraw their support and his government will fall. So your idea is, is, is certainly reasonable, and we've done it before, but I think that the other step-by-step uh, -step process might be more feasible. Carter, uh, your former executive director uh, accused you of uh, distorting, uh, to, to put it politely, distorting the, uh, the facts of the Middle East. Um, I think we've seen one example uh, of that today in your reference to Gaza. Um, it is true that Gaza is a prison, but I cannot see how you can possibly accuse Israel of being the, the cause of that prison. When, uh, when Israel withdrew from Gaza several years ago, they left an infrastructure in the territory for the nation um, living there. They left hospitals, they left houses, they left the hospitals fully supplied with, with uh, the requirements of hospitals. Hamas first action was to demolish those... those. Can, can you put the question, because we've got a lot of other people who want yes, to ask. Yes, uh, um, and I, I, can, I can also uh, give you evidence of the abundance of, of aid that Israel is sending. Please how, put the how, question. Can, how can you accuse Israel of being responsible for the prison? The prison surely is the result of Hamas' own action in its own population. Well, the prison to which I referred is the wall or fence that completely surrounds Gaza, which was built by and is maintained by Israel. And uh, as, as uh, I'm sure you are aware, Israel controls how much fuel oil goes into Gaza, how much food goes into Gaza. The only thing that can go out through the Rafah gate going into Egypt of people back and forth, and they are also indirectly controlled by Israel. So uh, I don't excuse Hamas from actions uh, uh, that are irresponsible, but I, I do believe that the people of Gaza overwhelmingly are not criminals, they're not um, uh, terrorists, they're not trying to kill Israelis, 
they would like to live by themselves. I worked out with the Hamas leadership when I was there a proposal that for the first time would only address Gaza because in the past it, uh, Hamas had already always insisted that both Ham- both Gaza and the West Bank, the entire Palestinian area, had to be included in a ceasefire. Israel would not do that. I induced Hamas to agree just to have a ceasefire in Gaza. And that was presented to the Israeli uh, cabinet. They turned it down with the understandable proviso or reason that Hamas might use a ceasefire to rearm themselves. The Israel today, every day, is negotiating actively with Hamas through an Egyptian intermediary. His name is Omar Suleiman. He's a cabinet officer in charge of intelligence. And so he represents both sides now every day. And so Suleiman went to Jerusalem last Monday. He told me on the phone day before yesterday to deliver the same proposal to Israel to agree to a ceasefire just on Hamas. And I hope that Israel will accept. But both sides are obviously at fault. And in my opinion, Hamas has not imprisoned themselves. As you may know earlier, Hamas, I mean, Gaza even had an airport. Uh, R.L. Sharon, with great publicity, went in with bulldozers and bulldozed the airport. Uh, Hamas is not permitted the people of Gaza are not permitted to go out through the port into the ocean to fish. And they can't go into Israel, and the very few of them can go into Egypt. So I consider this to be an imprisonment. And I do know that the, high, that the uh, Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations reported publicly to all the members of the Security Council that the average per family in Gaza now is eating only one meal per day and that the, the average calorie intake in Gaza is less than it is in the average sub-Saharan African uh, country. So this shows that they are suffering. And, and I think that, uh, I think that, that uh, the Great Britain and others should insist that, that Hamas uh, behave themselves, that the ceasefire be imposed, but to open up the floodgates, if I, if, if, if I had my way, of anything that the Gaza people want to eat or any fuel that they want to use to generate electricity, at least those two things. On I'm afraid we've run out of time. The red light has come on. I can speak for myself, but I think for everyone in this room, it's been an enormous privilege and an honor for us to have your presence in Hay. We're deeply grateful uh, for you to have uh, come and spent time with us. And I can, think can I say one other thing? Uh, I want to say it to this gentleman. You know, the last 32 years of my life, my wife would agree with this, that the preeminent... Uh, effort that I have made in international affairs in the White House or outside the White House is to bring security and peace to Israel. And my deep opinion, unchanged, is that that will only come when their neighbors, particularly the Palestinians, also have peace and security and their basic human rights. I think that's a combination of
Thank you. You did a good job. Thank you so much. Thank you.